everyone, and welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. This week, we're doing things a little different. Today, there's no head-to-head. There's no greatest hits or worst to first. Today, Chris and I are just going to rant about a few topics and get a few things off our chests. Well, mostly my chest, but... I'm not getting anything off of your chest. That's that's weird. Really? (laughs) (laughs) With the recent announcement of Judas Priest's kind of induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we decided to speak about a few things that sometimes spark a debate in our day-to-day conversations that we thought it would be a good idea to share. We're also going to touch on a couple of things about the music business in general. So stick around for that as well as our big four bands who are not in the Hall of Fame. As always, tell your friends that they can listen to Debating Metal on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, Chris, um, so we have a couple of things I want to talk about, and I I know you and I have discussed these things, um, not necessarily in length, but what we wanted to talk about. So the first thing we're going to talk about is Judas Priest getting into the Hall of Fame. And I, that's the, the phrase we're going to use because they're in there or they're going to be in there. It's just how it is that getting in there is what's up for debate. So they're, in, they're being inducted in a special class, which remind me what it's called originally. Uh, originally the sidemen award sidemen that's what it was (laughs) yeah so so this was a category that was established for guys that really weren't in the spotlight that were kind of you know tertiary members of the music industry that had an impact within the industry but not necessarily in front of a, a crowd well, the most notable Sidemen Award recipients was or were the E Street Band, Bruce Springsteen's backing band. Yeah. So, a backup band. So, this <laughs> exactly. they're basically saying that Judas Priest is a backup band. Well, since then, they've changed the name of the category. And it's now called the Music Excellence Award. So it's in te- it's technically it's an award. It's not even like here you're in the Hall of Fame type of thing. It's an award you receive. So almost like a Grammy, to to in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, what's strange about it, and I, I don't know. You know, I was just reading an article before we decided to hit record, where the guy writing the article did not know if they were being inducted with this award or if this was something that, you know, just they're going to get their name in the hall of fame, blah, 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 blah. No one knows what the, what the truth really is. Um, other than the idiots at the rock and roll hall of fame. Um, and Randy Rhodes, Randy Rhodes was the recipient of this award last year. Um, Uh, there were a few, there was LL Cool J, Billy Preston, Randy Rhodes, um, before that, so since 2010, they've renamed it and they've inducted Leon Russell, Cosimo Matassa, Tom Dowd, Glenn Johns, the E Street Band, Ringo Starr, Nile Rogers, and the other guys that I mentioned. So, Tom Dowd and Glenn Johns. Okay. Tom Dowd was, and I actually met Tom once. He came into. Um, my my record store that I was working at when I worked at Specs Music in Florida, in Miami, uh, across from the University of Miami, store number one is what it was. 
uh, he came in one night, and I think it was like a Friday, and he goes, where's your Leonard Skinner section? And I'm like, over here. And he's like, you see that name on the back there? I'm like, yeah, Tom Dowd. And he's like, that's me. I'm like, thinking to myself, do you do that at every store you go to? <laughs> like, who does that? <laughs> you know? I mean... If you're Tom Dowd, why not? I, mean, I guess, you know, it was just really weird to me. Like, you just walk into a store. I'm like, I've met other people. I met Andre Dawson, the baseball player. You know, he doesn't go around saying, you know, look at my baseball card. This is me. But it would know. be funny if he did. <laughs> so, you know, he Tom goes in there and he's like, you know, this is me. I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, and he goes, yeah. He, goes, he starts going off on his career. Now, Glenn Johns, um, I don't know if you know who he who he is, but he, um, I don't know if he engineered, um, I know he engineered, excuse me, I don't know if he helped produce, but because I know um, his name doesn't show up as a producer, uh, but he engineered Led Zeppelin throughout Led the 70s. Led Zeppelin, The Who, Eagles, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So his name, I've heard his name uh bounce around before but tom dowd is the more famous one there it's just one of those things is like so you, the music excellence award you gave it to two producers you give it to you know well Nile rogers is a producer too but he's also a music uh, an artist um Eastry band backup band i'm not trying to, to downgrade what they are because they're a very good band and they're bruce's personal band so essentially, it's Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, but their name didn't appear on the albums um, on the front of, on the front of the albums. I think maybe once or something like that. So it's kind of weird. But anyway, the point being is, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is a freaking joke. I, I don't know how you feel about them. <laughs> um, uh, I do, but <laughs> I mean, as a metal fan, it's really hard to have much respect for the rock and roll hall of fame. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. There's a lot of people in the hall of fame that deserve to be there. And there's no taking away from a lot of the, the artists that are there, whether they're multi-platinum artists or gold artists or never, you know, even really sold records per se. Um, the thing that bothers me is, is there's so much disrespect and hate for metal within the rock and roll hall of fame. So you can you can love all the other genres and and appreciate them and you know want to bring in like Dolly Parton, who was very respectful, tried to bow out of it. Um, you know, I I can understand her her thought process there, but I can also respect her as a musician. And yeah, maybe she should belong in there as well. But why is metal so overlooked and and really just despised by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? You know, it, it's one of those things for me where I think, you know, you obviously have these critics and writers, people who write for like Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine and things like that, and they they basically think their shit doesn't stink. They basically think that their opinion about music is, is the best. I mean, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. a, a rich guy who looks down upon a, a person who drives a Toyota Camry. You know, I drive a Ferrari, I drive a Rolls Royce, you drive a Toyota, you know, and that's just bullshit. We're all humans, okay? So we all have the, we all like the music that we like that doesn't take away 
from the music. I mean, you and I have talked about before that metal probably has the largest group of virtuoso musicians in the world, in my opinion. Now, you could sit there and say, you know, philharmonic orchestras all over the world, are ta- you have virtuoso musicians. But those guys read off of the uh, off the sheet of music. You know, try to put one of those guys in front of a concert crowd and have him shred his violin without looking at the at at the sheet music. Let's see if he could do it. You know, I mean, these guys guys who play metal for mo- for the most part I, I, is rock and roll in general, but a lot of metal to me are 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 just just amazing musicians, and they don't get the do that they that they deserve. It reminds me a lot of of critics um, and how much hate they had for like horror movies, but horror movies were some of the big, you know, summer cash cows. You know, they put out these these like Freddy and Jason and stuff like that, right? And they would come out and and they would just be utterly dismissed as a genre, yet they're the ones making money. Right. And, and and it's the same thing. Like the 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 metal community has been stalwarts and you know during the 80s that was that was the pop genre. And even then, like they, they just they didn't want to admit it. It's like it's not classy enough. Exactly. I mean, it's just like, you know, they look at him like at specifically metal musicians, hard rock musicians, they look at them like a, they're a bunch of scumbags. And mm-hmm. that's, just a, that's just a messed up idea and concept. You know, you're, you were talking about the movies and, you know, how, how these, these uh, summer blockbusters in a lot of cases were like the, like the Freddies and the, and the Jasons. You know, I remember um, I used to, you know, on Fridays when movies would come out, I would read the Miami Herald um, back when reading a newspaper was a thing. And they had this, I can't remember the guy's name. If I'm not mistaken, he's since passed away. He was a critic. Um, I think his last name was Cosford. Um, his, he, was a, he was a film critic. And I mean, if he gave a film two and a half stars, you could bank on that movie being a blockbuster. Now, mind you, we're talking out of four stars. The reason why is because it, he, he didn't give movies four stars. He didn't give movies three stars. But usually, uh, the movie that ended up getting two and a half stars was just going to be the movie that everyone loved. Now, I do know that he did give a few movies over time, uh, and I've, I've read a couple of them, four stars. He gave, I, I recall two specifically. One of them was My Own Private Idaho. Um, I can't remember who the main star was in that movie, but I know Anthony Kiedis from Red Hot Chili Peppers was in that movie. Um, and the other movie was Drugstore Cowboy that starred Matt my, Dillon. My Own Private Idaho was River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. Right, but I believe Kiedis was in that movie. That's the only reason why I remember that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Um, he was part of that group. It didn't necessarily star him, but he was part of that group in that movie. Um, and, uh, and the other one was a Mike drugstore cowboy with Matt Dillon. He gave drugstore cowboy four stars. I said, I got to see this. I mean, Matt Dillon, he's a good actor. Uh, you know, let me check this out. If, if 
I, I don't want to say that the movie was a piece of crap because it wasn't a piece of crap, but it was one of those artsy fartsy movies that, you know, they didn't glamorize drug use. They didn't glamorize the, the pain. My own private Idaho was a much better movie in that regards. Um, but drugstore cowboy just to me was just one of those art films made by a, a, a director that wanted to show off all these different kinds of skills that he had. That's the way I look at it. And 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 no offense to anyone who out there who likes drugstore cowboys. Not every movie is for every person. I just did not think it was worth the four stars that Cosford gave it because it was just absolutely the best movie he had seen in ages. So going back to music, this is the same thing. You get these critics that love certain kinds of music. They love the, 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 and I don't want to downgrade any of the musicians that I'm going to say right now, but they love the people like Patti Smith. They love people like, uh, Bruce Springsteen. Um, they, you know, the, the, it's just that, I don't know, the Patti Smith, the kind of the alternative kind of musicians out there, um, that just, they don't necessarily sell millions and millions of, of copies of albums, but, you know, the artsy-fartsy people like them. Yeah. Uh, they like to pick these, these certain artists that they can say, oh, they have a deeper message. You know, and <laughs> it, it's and that's really what it is. They just want to all, you know, stand in a circle and, and you know, circle jerk each other. But it's just... Uh, there's there's so much talent in the metal community that's overlooked and it's sad i mean it's absolutely sad and over in the overlooking of, of those artists i mean i i don't want to downgrade the fact that guns and roses is in the hall of fame but quite honestly i don't feel that they deserved to be in the hall of fame first ballot off of the basically the back of one album Yes, they released three studio albums. They released one EP, which, or excuse me, they released two EPs of which the same music was on both EPs, just so you know. And then they released the covers album. And they've since have released Chinese Democracy at that point. But the, the bottom line is that they they got on they got into the Hall of Fame on the strength of one album, their debut album. Now, mind you, a great album. Not putting anything down about Appetite for Destruction. It's a great okay, album, well, one of my then, favorite. Then Sex Pistols. Same thing. They have one album. Exactly. One album. And, That's all and they yeah, like, I mean, I get the concept of they are... Um, you know, they represent rock, the, the mindset of rock and roll or, you know, whatever bullshit thing that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame says. Um, but there are multi-platinum artists that that are not in the Hall of Fame. I mean, I, you, you know, you mentioned the Sex Pistols. And that's really cool because here's the thing. I listened to part of that album the other day for the first time. Now, mm-hmm. mind you, I've heard I've heard anarchy in the uk i've heard holiday in the sun and i've heard god save the queen i i personally don't understand what the big deal is about those songs 
there's it's, nothing I, there's I nothing mean, special about those songs the recording of it sucked it, it sounded muffled realistically okay. it's less about the actual music and more about the attitude and the time period etc right okay because punk punk music was a rebellion so it's a documentation of that attitude so i get it i get it that it that they were very influential and that's that's why they're in the hall of fame but you can't give me that they deserve to be in the hall of fame and you know so many of our our metal favorites are not oh absolutely why is why is motorhead not in the hall of fame yet we have the sex pistols and, and, and the funny thing is, is, as shitty as the Motorhead made their recording sound, they still sounded better than that album. Absolutely. I, I just, I listened to it and I'm like, what's the big deal? You know, like I, 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 I can understand, I mean, maybe what came out in 1977, I mean, punk existed. I, I, I just don't understand what the big deal is. Was it the first one to to basically you know tell the government to f off? No, you know I, I don't get it, and I never got it. And I, I, you know, maybe I'm missing something along the way, but it didn't make any sense to me, you know. And and the whole thing with Guns and Roses, it's just it's like, why did they go in first, you know? And it took Deep Purple ages you know, a couple of decades literally to get in. And it took so long that John Lord ended up passing away before he could get in. Okay. I mean, it made no sense whatsoever. Deep Purple, if you want to talk about influential, Deep Purple, one song is one of the most influential songs ever written. And it's in, and, and for them to sit there and say, you know, or, or every year pass on them because, you know, for whatever reason, they weren't, you know, they weren't media darlings or Richie Blackmore must have told someone to fuck off somewhere along the line. You know, it didn't make any sense because if you want to talk about influential, that song, Smoke in the Water, the first few chords is one of the most influential songs ever to, to, to millions and millions and millions of guitar players out there, you know. You're telling me, look, no, no disrespect to Jackson Brown, but you're telling me Jackson Brown should be in the Hall of Fame before Deep Purple. I'm not telling you that. <laughs> but, right, exactly. I get your point. It's, it's, it is absolutely stupid, clueless. You know, I listened to Eddie Trunk rant about it the other day, and he said that. They were clueless. And so had- Deep Purple sold a hundred million albums so far, and Jackson Brown has sold eighteen million. And it took how much longer for for <laughs> Deep Purple to get in? I mean, where they get into the in the late two thousands? They got in. Uh, Deep Purple got in in two thousand sixteen. Two thousand sixteen. Past the 2000s. Yeah. And their first album was in 1967, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So they're eligible 25 years after the first album, which meant that it was in the early 90s that they were eligible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and what year did Jackson Brown get in? 2004. 2004. So it took him a while. I get that. But well, he's only sold 18 million albums. Yeah, no, no, that, that I understand. I mean, I, wh- where where is his influence 
to me. I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I know I'm aware of who he is. I'm aware that he's done, you know, he's done production as well as being country, an artist. Country rock, folk rock. He worked a little bit with the Eagles. Um, you know, he's, he's had several albums. He's written songs for other people. He's he, a charitable he an, individual. He's an activist, At, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And there. that's the big thing, is that he's an activist. And I can tell you that's probably why he got in there. Exactly. Scene. Exactly. You know? Okay. He's an activist. So a Rage Against the Machine. Mm-hmm. So, but that, that Rage Against the Machine's a, a talk for another time. You know, it, it's it's just unbelievable how disrespected hard rock and heavy metal are by the rock and roll hall of fame and not just them but the grammys too the grammys are clueless oh you know yeah that's a that's a whole nother thing the grammys man like yeah you have some of them get get uh nominated but it's almost just like a a give me like oh you got nominated so that's good enough well and even then there's been many times they should have won yeah, but then, even then, like for instance, I mean, uh, wh- wh- who just got in right now? Um, who just got the Grammy? Uh, Dream Theater. Dream Theater just got a Grammy for a song. Apparently, that's like nine minutes long, and it's got a bajillion, you know, uh, key changes and time changes and all this stuff, and you know, it's in a different time signature, all sorts of different shit. Okay, I guarantee you, just like Eddie said, uh, Eddie Trunk, that who the people who voted for him did not listen to the song. No. You know, and if they did, they had no understanding because if they would have listened to the song, they probably would have picked something else because they would have been like, what the hell is this? You know, but they gave it a dream theater because they probably heard the name before. And it, it quite honestly, it's the same reason when Metallica lost for the song one in 1989, they won the next year for a cover song. I believe they, I believe that's when they won for Stone Cold Crazy for uh, uh, you know the, their cover of Queen because they, they came out on that Rubiat uh, tribute yeah. album, you know, and so you know they lost to Jethro Tull, who's not a metal band. They win for a cover song, and then I think they win for the next three years because, of course, you know, Enter Sandman and the Black Album just blew the doors off of everything. So they were now the media darlings of the world, you know, and it's funny. And you- and, oh, and no, take, no, taking nothing away from Metallica, but at the same time, you know, part of that, the, the reason they won was because they were media darlings. Yeah. Because it, it was good publicity. Exactly. And I'm, I, I take nothing away from that. They were. But here's a funny thing. and uh, I forgot what documentary I was watching recently. And um, they, when, when that whole, I, I forgot what it was, but that whole thing time period when they released the black album and they got invited to the to the queen tribute and they got to play three songs and then james got to play with with uh uh tony iomi and and brian may and, and the rest of queen on stage to to do um stone cold crazy basically you know they they walked into this place and they thought that they were like f- four of the biggest scumbags you know, to, to walk in there and like, why are we here? Why are they, they're inviting us. Do they know who we are? Do they know that we're a bunch of punks from LA in San Francisco? You know, like, uh, why are we being invited to this? This is, this is Lars's, uh, supposed 
thought process, right? And I get it because at that time they were no, they were technically were nobodies in the in the in the eyes of the the world. But they got invited, you know, and then all of a sudden from there the the train just kept on going, you know. It, so so they get you know their first year of eligibility, they get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Okay, I get it. But if I'm not mistaken, Black Sabbath took a while to get in. You know, they didn't get in on first shot. I mean, so. it's nice to be recognized for something like that. But at the same time, I wouldn't give two shits if I was in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, if I was a metal artist, to be honest. Until until they figure out how to start showing people some respect, I, I wouldn't give a crap. I mean, you f- you feel you feel that finally someone has, has acknowledged you. And I get that. Like, I, I, I mean, look, Bruce Dickinson says like, all I need is the acknowledgement of the fans. And that's, that's the way to look at it. Cause these people are not fans and these people are just music industry. Um, what's the word? Um, rats? Snobs. Snobs. Yeah. No, I mean, it is, you know, th- we could go on for hours about this um, and and continue to talk about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and how much uh, I can't stand them and, and the fact that they keep disrespecting my boys out there in Middle Land. But, you know, you're never going to see Poison in there. You're never going to see a, a Motley Crue. You're never going to see Cinderella, a Warrant, uh, Dokken, or L.A. Guns. You're never going to see any bands like that. You know, the closest thing is Guns N' Roses. Basically, Guns N' Roses went in for all those bands. And, and yeah, the, you know, I can see that exactly. So that you know, we you know, you should be happy with that. That's basically what they're saying. Yeah, and you know? I, I kind of feel the same way. Metallica's in there for the, you know, the thrash bands, the the, the heavier metallic. I mean, metal bands. Um, Judas Priest is getting in in a for, shitty for the mainstream. Way. Yeah. Oh no, Judas Priest. Judas Priest is getting in in the worst way possible. Metallica got inducted. Okay, uh, Kiss got inducted. Judas Priest—they're technically "quote unquote" getting inducted. Yeah, Def Leppard got inducted, but they're getting presented with an award—a thank you for your musicianship, a participation trophy, a participation trophy, if you will. And you know what? Basically, if I rob, fuck the suit. I'm going to go in there in a metal-studded tuxedo. <laughs> leather <laughs> and dragging chains behind me, you know, and just give like one giant whale <laughs> to everybody, you know, because he's just got to show it the way that he represents it every day. Um, I agree. <laughs> so, Go dressed as Rob Halford. Exactly. Well, he himself. have you seen him dress sometimes? You might not want him to dress that way. Hey, assless chaps and everything, <laughs> and the high he- and the high heels, the, the, the high, heels. the high stilettos. <laughs> All right, so like I said, we can keep talking about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it'll be hours. Um, but he- let's talk about a couple of other things that um, kind of piqued my interest. Um, a few or well, a month ago. And uh, I don't, you and I haven't talked about this part of it too much. A month ago was record store day or thereabouts. And my beef with record store day, I mean, I celebrate it. I have no problem with it per se. But 
what I began to realize is it especially hit me with Kirk Hammett's uh, solo EP release. Kirk Hammett released it on vinyl and he released it on CD at the same time. Um, and with the vinyl release came the download card with that. Now, here's my beef with Record Store Day. Record Store Day is called Record Store Day because the stores are nicknamed record stores. They're actually music stores, music media stores, if you will. Okay. But, you know, the old school label has always been record store. I'm going to go to my record. I'm going to, I'm going to the record store. I want to go get something to listen to. I want to go buy something. Um, but you didn't necessarily go to the record store just for records. They had tapes and they had CDs, uh, CDs, obviously, you know, from the mid eighties on, and then CDs became the number one format for listening to music in the nineties. I am a child of both records and then when CDs came came about I adopted CDs. I have over 2000 CDs sitting behind my back right now. And I have about uh, let me say 500 records, I think. Maybe maybe less, between 3 and 5. And when when I started collecting CDs or buying CDs, I bought the CDs because I'm like these sound way better than records and they're portable and I could put them in my car without having to re-record an album. You know, I, yeah, I, when, when I was a kid, I used to ride around with a record and it was, it was just flopping all over. You, and, <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, <laughs> the funny thing about that is I saw a picture, someone, some company invented a record player to go in a car. Oh, really? Did not work very well. I imagine not. <laughs> <laughs> but Well, it had one of those things where it clamped down on the record, but it was just too big. Yeah. I mean, try putting that shit in your dashboard. <laughs> or to, <laughs> even better, try getting the one that, you know, like the removable the removable cassette deck so you don't get it stolen. <laughs> <laughs> Take it with. Take it with you. So, so anyway, th- my beef with Record Store Day is why is it about vinyl and vinyl only? You know, I, I don't get that. Uh, and I know you are not a big, you know, you at one point at some time gave up all your hard media. Okay. I did. Uh, um, I was very broke and needed the money and I sold every CD I owned with the, with a few exceptions. I still have some really sentimental ones, but. Um, you know, you could have you just kept the CDs and gone straight to prostitution. No, I could I could have kept the CDs and uh, you know divorced the wife earlier. <laughs> uh, so, probably would have been saved me a lot of uh, mental stress, but uh, <laughs> grief, time, and money. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I I gave up pretty much all of my physical media. Went mostly mostly digital. I would say almost a hundred percent digital. Um, I grew up listening to mostly cassette tapes though, you know, when I was a, a kid because they were, they were portable and we didn't have the, the CDs or we didn't have really a lot of money for CDs. My parents didn't adopt that format until I would say the two thousands. Oh wow. So, so most of what I listened to, my, yeah, my sister was the first one to buy a CD player and I think the first CD she bought 
was the Simpsons soundtrack. <laughs> I can't remember which one, but it was it was with the old stuff from like the first few seasons. And that was the first CD we had in the house. <laughs> wow. I mean, my, you know, I, I think I've mentioned it before. My first CDs were ACDC's Back in Black, Highway to Hell, Queen's Rights, The Warning, and Guns N' Roses Lies because it just came out. Um, here's a, so what's the first metal album you owned just aside um if if you want to put it like that i mean i would consider kiss alive too the first metal album i owned okay i i want to say my first one was silver chair frog stomp well, not really metal but like hard rock you know yeah now when it came to when it came to records, I the first few were all Kiss. Um, I okay. had a bunch of Kiss records before I had um, any other rock metal albums. Then um, when when I when MTV came around and things started to explode, um, the I would say the first one after that would probably be Back in Black. Um, because I know I bought that because I saw the movie Let There Be Rock. And the first, I went to ACDC, the ACDC bin in the record store right across from the movie theater back in Yonkers. And they had Back in Black. And I believe that's the same record store that I bought Van Halen 2 at, which was the first Van Halen. And I probably bought Screaming for Vengeance from there for, for, uh, for Judas Priest and... I believe it was a record store up the street, which was a head shop uh, back in the day where you can get your marijuana paraphernalia and your Grateful Dead toys <laughs> and, and and a bunch of T-shirts and glowing, you know, the what do you call those? Um, not glow in the dark, but those are uh, the black light posters. Um, nice. and, they, and they also had records in the middle of the thing so that they could be a legitimate business. <laughs> I think that's where I got Iron Maiden's uh, Number of the Beast from. There were two stores in, in in where I grew up that were not too far from each other that sold records. Those were probably my first few albums that I got, all in the 82 era or year. I mean, I know Back in Black came out in 80, Van Halen uh, 2 came out in 79, but um, 82 was when I started getting into that stuff, and those were the ones that I bought. So, gotcha. so, the, so my beef is, you know, with this resurgence of, of vinyl and now CDs are making a comeback, okay, my, uh, my problem with Record Store Day is that you have these limited edition records that come out, um, you know, this has become, it's, this is almost equivalent to standing in line at Ticketmaster on a Saturday morning waiting for the concert to go and then the, the, the line is bombarded with uh scalpers now we're getting scalpers left and right if you want to call them that trying to buy the 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 one album that is going to be the most prestigious for record store day and this this year's for 2022 was taylor swift seven inch single it was it was being sold for five hundred dollars same same day yeah five hundred dollars Four five hundred dollars same day. It was on eBay. Oh, and on eBay, I thought you meant in the record store. No, 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 no. Not the, re- the record store was like 10, 10, 15 bucks. Something like that, something like that, fifteen twenty. I don't know. 
whatever it was. That's yeah, that's a problem I have with a lot of media and and just things in general. People will buy all this stuff up and then just immediately go list it on eBay, and that's their their way of making money. But it ruins it for the fan base. No, absolutely. It really, it really makes it hard to be a fan of a lot of things right now because of the scalping. And the scalping has become so ridiculous. I mean, I've I've found something. I want to I want to get the live release of well, it's a li- it's a live album. It was from Rage Against the Machine live in Mexico City that came out two record store days ago, I think it was. Uh, oh no, it was last year. I'm sorry, in 2021. And I missed that day because I I was coming back from Miami and uh, I did not get to the store in time. So now I looked it up on eBay and someone wants 40 bucks for it. You know what? I could live with 40 bucks. It's not that bad. It was probably a 30 to $35 album to begin with. Maybe even $40 because it's a double live album. But, you know, like the Ozzy Live I think the cheapest I ever saw, you know, it was a live recording, Randy Rhodes era. Um, same tour as the album that Tribute is recorded from. And it's just a different sound, but it was called Ozzy Live, has Randy on it. And I, I see it now for like a hundred bucks. I mean, it's kind of disappointing because I don't really feel like spending a hundred dollars on something that was, you know, yeah, it's about 10 years old now. The recording itself obviously is 40 years old. But still, just disappointing that you have to do, go through those hoops to try and get something that you like. Absolutely. So my beef with, with Record Store Day is really why is it just about the records? Uh, it really should be, uh, uh, should be released. If, if they're going to do vinyl, you know, they should put it on CD. Um, I don't see what the problem is. CD is probably cheaper to, to, to reproduce. Okay, you don't necessarily, you can still keep it to a limited edition, you know. I know some of these record store day releases are 2,000, 4,000, 5,000, you know, copies. Some of them are re- are basically record store day first, and then the, the release becomes uh, nationwide. But, you know, like Kirk Hammett was just released on record store day. It had a certain amount of vinyls, certain amount of CDs. It's probably, you know, going to be a regular CD, but... I you know it's just those kinds of things annoy me about these kind of th- this this day because you have these great releases that yeah they're limited I get it but I really think they should release it on CD for those people who prefer it on CD and on top of that and I've told you this they really need to freaking put download cards to download the MP3s on these records if they want records to sell regularly and 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 sell hot put the fucking down, download card on there. You know, there was not a question. I knew it was going to be in Kirk Hammett's. The other ones, none of them had it. I bought five records that day. Nobody had it. So that that's that's my beef. I, I know you don't go record collecting as much as I do. No, but I, I mean, I collect my own things. I'm a, I'm a huge comic book collector and it's, it's the same thing. Like, and I watch a, a YouTube channel that I I'm a big fan of that uh, it's called toy galaxy. And they, they talk about a lot of eighties stuff, you know, stuff that I grew up with, you know, mostly like TV shows and toy lines that went along with them. It's very nostalgic. Right. And um, the thing he says at the end is if you see two on the shelf, leave one for the next collector. 
And I agree with that mentality because I, I, I'm a conscientious person. I care about other people. And sometimes that sucks because it's not really returned by a lot of people, to be honest. Um, but, yeah, if, if, if you are one of those people and you see two on the shelf, it, you know, it, the world would be a better place if you left one for the next collector. Absolutely, especially if you know it's limited edition. You know, it's like, come on, man. You know, you don't have to go out there. And that's why um, on Record Store Day, they limit you to one. And it should be that way. You know, you can't get, you know, uh, what did I, I can't remember. Oh, the Alice in Chains. You know what? If you can go to Record Store Day and buy your one copy, and if it is there the next time you go back to the Record Store after Record Store Day, by all means, get as many as you want. But if it's not there, it's not there for a reason. It's collectible. So, you know, I got my Alice in Chains EP, but I know if I go back there, there's still some. Because there was a whole shitload of Alice in Chains EPs that day, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think yeah, it was necessarily. That's the ma- thing. Like, if, if it's been a few weeks right. and nobody's come by and bought them and you really want to buy them to resell them, fine, whatever. But there, there's a, the, the scalping's gotten so bad that it's happening before it even meets street date. So some some of this stuff is making it onto eBay before it's even actually out there for the regular public to consume it. Well, you know, the thing about that, too, for me, like, I, I think what happens there is just somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, right? Exactly. Get that for me. But the but the but when you see the, the release or you see the, the picture on eBay, they don't have it. They're waiting for that oh. guy to get it. For sure, you know, but they they've had their guy right. They've um, had the guy, you know, secure with, them somehow. Exactly, you know, some guy who works at the record store, some guy who works at the distributor. But know. I'm talking; it's even going further than that with other stuff that it's actually getting out there before street dates are actually hit, and that's that's the problem that I'm seeing. It's it's getting worse and worse. Yeah, I, I I'm not I'm not a fan of that, you know, and again. I love Record Store Day. I love the concept, the idea, the fact that many, many, many artists are behind it. But I think that um, it needs to have a little bit more, um, the word is not accessibility per se, but I just think there needs to be more openness to releasing stuff on CD. There's a few artists here and there that do that. But um, I really think... The, the even the limited edition stuff, I think some of that stuff should be released on CD, you know, so that people who prefer that format can still get something limited, but you know, it's not necessarily the vinyl. Like, I, I'm sure there's people who don't participate in Record Store Day because they can't get it on CD, they don't want to pay for the vinyl because they don't listen to vinyl, you know, and and that that's a shame because. You know, they're just going to probably rip it from somewhere, you know, get some torrent and, and download it illegally. And, you know, but they would probably gladly pay for it if it was available on Record Store Day in a CD. Yeah. Okay. So um, we talked about that. So the last thing that I really wanted to talk about today, and unless you have something else you want to get off your chest, um, is partially the music business. I read this headline the other day from Anvil talking about the fact that they got fucked by the music business. And 
you know, you and I have had discussions over and over again about the the glam metal bands that got screwed when grunge became big and we talked we kind of referenced it on the on on the um the poison versus warren episode we did recently the whole thing with anvil getting fucked by the music business because remember like they said they were on tour they were on top of the world they were opening for for this band they were opening for that band and then you know they've their album is quote unquote selling and then all of a sudden nothing they were off the tour they were dropped by the label and there was no support um i it's not i don't have a problem believing that um i have a problem with I guess how it happened, you know, per se, like, you know, like when you see the documentary, you know, they tell you the same thing. We were on top of the world and then we weren't, but why, how come all of a sudden there was no support for Anvil? Okay. And this happens to lots of bands. What happened? Why are these bands that you heard at one point so great? Where did the disintegration come from? That's the question. That's my rant about this. You know, why did Anvil get fucked? Did somebody sit there and say, you know what? I want to fuck Anvil. Is that the reason? Or was it, you know, some underlying problem with the record company? Did they sign with the wrong record company? You know, I I mean, part of it was, and then part of it was they, they disappeared because the 90s hit. I mean, things drastically changed, and there was no support from the record companies. There was no support from MTV, because the 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 new sensation was grunge. So, the, it didn't matter if the music was really good or not. A lot of times in the in the eighties, as long as there was one or two good songs per album, that w- there was enough trend with. Um, with metal at the time that a lot of those bands could make it. But if they didn't have consistently good music across the board on their records, then they weren't going to survive through that time period. And that's, we've talked about that multiple times with multiple bands and Anvil. They had some good stuff at the beginning, but when the the 1990s hit, they didn't. Yeah. But look, basically Anvil's career was over after the third album. Okay. They came out in 1981 with their first album, Hard and Heavy, 82, Metal on Metal, and 83, Forge and Fire. Then there was a four-year break, and that is where Anvil went downhill. That um, hurt them. Yeah, absolutely that hurt them. They ended up signing with Metal Blade for two albums, came out in 87 and 88, um, Strength of Steel, Pound for Pound. Quite honestly, I remember the the... Anvil being real popular in the early 80s. I was reading all the magazines. I was seeing their name everywhere. And then they disappeared for four years. You know, and uh, I absolutely that hurt them. Okay. You know, and so I'm, I'm reading here, you know, in 83, they were managed by David Krebs uh, and uh, his assistant, Paul O'Neill. You know, they signed a managing contract with Anvil, convinced Anvil to release the band from its contract, or Attic, excuse me, Attic Records, to release the band from its contract so the band could be put on a major label. However, after initial interest, Krebs 
eventually stopped returning phone calls and did not get the band on a major label recording contract. He released the band in mid-1986. So, you know, you, you have... The, the biggest problem with these small little labels like Attic, um, let's go all the way back to Gull with Judas Priest. Oof. Okay. Yeah, is that's, it, a, you, that's an awful story. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's very similar. Basically, they will not, because they know what they're sitting on, they will not release the bands. Now, in, in, the, in the case of Attic, I don't know what kind of contract Anvil had with Attic, but they did three albums with him. And so at some point, you know, you, you, you know, David Krebs was trying to get him off of Attic so that they could sign him to a major label. If David Krebs, who was Aerosmith's manager, couldn't get him off of Attic without going through a whole legal problem, which is probably the reason why he dropped them a couple of years later, I'm pretty sure they were not going to get out of any loophole that Attic was going to give them. And that's basically why they got screwed. So they ended up getting, you know, they had to wait all the way to 1987, four years. In the 80s, four years was a death sentence. You were done if you did not have your name in the public eye year in and year out through the 80s. It was, that's just the way it was. Amazing enough that Metallica was able to do to to spread it to two years, you know, in the eighties. But they were they were on word of mouth until until the video for one. So Anvil's problem was was management and a label that would not let them go. Other bands, you know, we, we Judas Priest. They, I, I can't remember what Rob said in the book, but they got out of their contract with Gull. And they ended up signing with Sony, but they have yet to this day ever been able to get a hand on the masters for Sad Wings of Destiny albums, and yeah. Rockerola. You know, and and that that company, whoever is in control of of the masters, keeps putting out. Every other year, regurgitating some remastered version, they've done. They've they've been part of Record Store Day for the last three years. Um, released Sad Wings of Destiny. I mean, I bought it. The 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 Sad Wings of Destiny, you know, reissue that they did was fabulous. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from that one. That was awesome. They you know uh, uh, embossed album cover, um, remastered. Um, sounds great. It's but they're doing vinyl. exactly that. It's just they're they're taking advantage of the fans. Yeah. Oh no. By I, continuing to re-release this stuff, and it's it's it should belong to the artist, but the law is the law. Right. It, you know. You know, and I don't know if Judas Priest is making any money on those. Uh, I don't. I I would think they get something for it, but who knows? Um, yeah. But like this year. Um, I believe it was the best of Judas Priest that was re-released uh, again on on, a, on record store day format, you know, a vinyl for that matter. Um, so it's just kind of weird um, with Gull, but you know, there's obviously countless stories of countless amount of artists that that get screwed by their record companies. They get screwed by their management companies, and they disappear. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, you hear about them again. And it's like, what happened? You know, you were you were going to be big. You were going to be a contender. What happened? You know, and is it the music business that screws you? 
or is it your bad decision making? You know, I mean, it's probably a little bit of both, but I think in a lot of ways, it is a lot of times the music industry, like knowing about the band Vixen, Vixen's an all girls metal band, and they really struggled to get into the industry in the first place because the, the a lot of the record companies would hear them and they'd be like, oh, we already have a girl band signed, so we don't need another one. You know, that's that sucks because they they were really in their prime at the very beginning of their career before they kind of got warped by what the the company who who was their record company for the first I, album. I believe it was MCA. So and Vixen. And that's the other thing, too. You know, the record company that you end up signing with has a tremendous amount of influence as far as how they can promote your band, how they can record your album. And when I say influence, if they're stupid and they don't have a marketing team that knows what to deal with, who to contact in that particular arena of music when it comes to hard rock or heavy metal if they don't have any contacts and all they know are, are the frank sinatra contacts your album's dead in the water for sure you know you're not uh, so, gonna get i'm sorry so it was manhattan was yes. their record company and so they bring on that because they felt like they needed other songs to be written they bring on richard marks who is a huge metal guy, right? He writes lots of metal songs. He writes uh, Edge of a Broken Heart. Yeah, sure. It's a big hit. But it doesn't represent Vixen. You know, there's there's four or five songs that were, were not written by the band. They were written by other guys, and I do mean men, uh, that were supposed to be the, the singles. When you actually listen to that first album, the, the songs that you really enjoy listening to are the ones written by the band. You know, I got to say, the dude's name Fee Waybill is pretty freaking weird and cool at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fee, Fee, well, if, you're, if your name was John Waldo, I'd change my name to Fee too. But Fee Waybill <laughs> is the, the singer for the tubes and uh, he helped write... Uh, Edge of a Broken Heart with uh, Richard Marks. Um, but yes, I completely agree with you when it comes to, you know, you have a band and then basically they were treated very similarly to how they would treat artists from the 50s. Like you, they had a, a good look, they had a good voice. We're going to give you a song. You're going to do this. You know, and it was basically, you're going to do this. You, and, that, and management go, come on, hey, you're going to do this. We're going to make lots of money, blah, blah, blah. You know, exactly. And like like what we talked about with uh, with Warren. Right, exactly. You know, Warren, yeah, your guitarist isn't really what we want. So we're going to bring in a, a, a guy to play all the solos. And then we're also going to uh, make your album a different title because... We don't have confidence in your leadoff single, so write this, uh, you know, something that's going to be a big anthem. I, you know, the music business has chewed up and swallowed countless, countless artists, and the ones that make it, it's amazing. It's obviously a very small percentage. You know, um, I, I, I compare things. Let's put it this way: Metallica. Okay, Metallica was driven by Lars Ulrich. Lars was driven to make it and succeed. Okay, 
the minute that he signed with Megaforce, they were Megaforce's first band. They were Megaforce's second release. Okay. And as soon as they got to New York, the first thing that, that after, after waking up in, in uh, Johnny Z's house, he basically says to himself, I need a new manager. This guy's not going to, this guy's not going to bring us over the top. And this is, this is from a kid who, who basically hasn't had his first album released yet, but he already knows that it's not going to be what he needs in the end. Um, they ended up signing with Q prime management, which they are still with today. And Q prime, you know, has had some really large acts. Um, and the guys from Q prime, uh, Peter Mensch and, and uh, uh, I think it was Dave. So I can't remember. Um, they, at one point were managing ACDC when they were part of Lieber and Krebs. Um, in the in the late seventies, and ACDC wasn't happy with Lieber, with those guys. I think they fired Dave Men or Peter Mensch. <laughs> so for you know, it's weird how how the circle of management life works. But you know, Q Prime had Queensrÿche. They've had Dokken. Uh, I believe they had Def Leppard. I'm not sure. Um, and and Metallica. Metallica's been with them since 1983, I think 84. So they've they're, that's their number one band obviously you can tell something from a good management company to these smaller guys who just sit there and they, they, they basically blow smoke up your ass and and treat bands like anvil and and vixen basically like you know disposable humans oh yeah it's tough because i i've been watching a lot of stuff about different bands that I'm not super familiar with and kind of getting to learn more about, you know, the, the wider stretch of, of, of metal. And even within the, the metal world, sometimes other people like, let me give you an example. There's Keel, the band, uh, Ron Keel's project, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So he has, they have their first album lay down the law. It's not bad. You know, it's a glam metal, album um you know kind of high energy uh raw sounding and then they go into their second album and gene simmons produces it well gene simmons says hey i have all these leftover songs from our album that didn't make the cut why don't you put them on your album well the other that's thing, garbage well the other thing too about that and 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 yes i agree with you that that's garbage but Keel, in that particular case, they you know they're signed to Shrapnel Records with Lay Down the Law. They get fine, they get signed to a major label of MCA, and they're given Gene Simmons as their producer. The problem was that they they as soon as they got signed to MCA, MCA says well, go in the studio. Well, shit, they didn't have any songs. They only literally had three songs written, and so that's a huge part of the reason why they ended up going with those Gene Simmons songs because they had nothing written. Now, could they have written or should they have written more? He pushed them on them too. Right. That I'm pretty sure that was it to be that way he can make more money. You know, exactly. that, that's he Gene Simmons. songwriting credit. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's one of those things where they were caught with their pants down with not having backup songs and then on top of that you know you get this guy who's very pushy 
you know, we all know how yeah. Gene is, you know, and a, and a label saying you need an album, you know, in the next six weeks. Uh oh. So yeah, Keel so, Keel was one of those people that could have easily have been, you know, chewed up and spit out, and it took him a while. So part of it is a lot of luck and it's dedication by the members of the band too. So if you have a lineup that it's they're in tough times and they're not making a lot of money, but the music's good, some of those guys may not stick around because they just they're not making the money they need to to just live every day. Right. So a lot of times you'd see musicians that were very good. You'd say, what happened to that guitarist? He was awesome. You know, and it, and it just, the, the lifestyle didn't work for him or just the money he was making didn't work for him. It's a lot of luck. It's, it's timing. It's, um, you know, does this work for you? There's so many things, so many factors of why some bands make it and some bands don't. I don't. I don't think Keel didn't make it because they had some crappy songs on their second album. I think they didn't make it because they continued to have crappy songs for <laughs> many, many albums after. You know, and they had some good ones, but then they like. There's they're just one example of these bands that are like that. Anvil's the same way. They had three albums that were pretty dang good or two really. Cause their first album, honestly, it's, it's rough. Uh, it's got a couple good st- or songs on it, but the first album's not that great, but they, they kind of hit their stride with two and three. And then after that, they, they lost their steam. So sometimes it just, it's just like that. You may put out one amazing album and then never do anything great after that. Look, it's very rare that you have a band like, let's say, Armored Saint that have been to the to the bottom of that shithole and have still been able to remain friends and still be able to remain a band all these years later. Oh, absolutely. Because Armored Saint is one of those bands that uh, they put out really good music and they've just been utterly overlooked. Well, I mean, you know, you and I were talking about them the other day. So you get the first album, March of the Saint, okay? And according to them, March of the Saint, the song, was supposed to be faster. So when they released their uh, nod to the old school um, album in the in the 2000s, they sped up the song. I don't believe that to be absolutely true, only because, first of all, nobody was playing that fast back then. You know, there was... Well, f- some of the interviews from back then, though, he talks about... Um, what the record company made them do like that's interesting because there's actually documentation of a lot of the stuff where he said like at the time of the releases within the same year he's talking about they made us do this this and this and it's not really an armored saint thing yeah no he did he did mention that and so the first song they, they had like their big hit was can you deliver i love that song that song is awesome you know and but March of the Saint was a good song, and I think the pace of it was fine back then. They just sped it up again because they said, oh, we always wanted to play it faster. Okay, I get you. You know, like just like everybody says, oh, we always wanted to play it in D. No, you didn't. You fuck, if your ass would have wanted to play it in D back in the day, you would have played it in D. Okay? But nobody was playing in D. So, you know. I mean, Pachelbel was. Well, what? Canon in D. <laughs> 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 I went real old school. Yeah, that. that's real old school. <laughs> but you know, um they their issue was they signed with the record label that had no idea what to do with them. 
we have these guys that sitting there sounding they they they're, they sound great they're a metal band they dress like they're from you know the the dark ages and what are we supposed to do with these guys you know much like i said if you look up the definition of heavy metal in the dictionary you should see their faces on there because they're pure metal um so it's it's one of these things where it's like what do we do with this band well you know can't somebody call a friend and say, "Hey, man, you got this band on your on your <laughs> on your label? How do you get them promoted?" I mean, come on, these are all people know each other. How is it that, that this care. one guy and you know on this one label not know what to do with them? You know, I've I've said this many times that the the creatives are screwed over so often by uncreative people people that are just in the industry to make money. And that's understandable. Everybody wants to make money or not everybody, but most people want to make money. Um, and I get that, but the, the creatives who are actually making the material that we consume and that we love, you know, TV shows, movies, music, etc. It's all hinging on these people that have no creative aspects in their entire life they 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 are worthless and we we are allowing our art to be ruined by these people it, it's absolutely true what you're saying because you got people in charge that don't know squat about making music they don't know squat about making a painting they don't know squat about drawing a comic book and and all the stuff that goes behind behind the scenes to do those things, they don't know Scott. They know promoting. Okay, you know promote. Stick to fucking promoting. Okay, mm-hmm. if you know promote the stuff that's good and that people want to consume, and stop giving us crap that we don't want. I mean, because that that's when it goes downhill. Exactly. I mean, guys like John Kaladner were famous for a reason. Okay. He had an absolutely awesome ear at certain things and certain aspects of songs and, and, and you know, uh, the, the final product because it was just that good. I mean, he's the guy who told Steven Tyler, I really think you need to change that word rape to something else. Otherwise, we're not going to get this song on the radio. And he's talking about, you know, uh, Janie's got a gun. So Stephen changed the word rape to Jack. He, so instead of saying he raped a little bitty baby, he wrote he jacked a little bitty baby. Completely changes the song to be more acceptable to the general public. And that song was huge. Okay? One of those things. He was, he was the force behind a lot of things that went on with Whitesnake. You know, when they were huge in the 80s. You know, John. Was he the one who said to change hobo? Uh, he may have been. He may have been the one to suggest. I don't remember if he may have been the one to suggest you doing here. I go again, and he may have said to yeah. change hobo. I don't remember um, if David ever said it was John's choice. But John Kaladner is that kind of person who would probably you know realize that and say, yeah, let's do this instead of that. You know, it's it's one of those things where. You know that's what an A and R man does for you. They're they're there to be the 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 ear and the and the 
or the the pathway from from the musician to the fan. Okay, mm-hmm. that, that's, but a good one allows an artist to still be an artist, right? And just says, "Hey, this might be a good decision to change." You know who's bi- who's big to uh, really huge for Atlantic Records? Jason Flom. I'm sure you've heard the name before. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jason was really big, and he was a big metalhead, and he knew all those bands, and and he's the one who's able to push certain bands and know what he had behind them and 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 get them moving. You know, not everybody is going to succeed because even though Jason or John or somebody or myself who anybody who listens to music and says, "You know, that's going to be that's going to be a big song." You know, it it could be you could be dead in the water. Just like, you know, I like I love a lot of the songs that are on um Waiting for the Punchline from Extreme. I've talked about it before. But that album went nowhere because it had no no promotional uh, push behind it. But there's some really good songs in there. You know, um, I was asked back in 1992 by one of the buyers at Specs Music. She handed me a CD from a band called Stone Temple Pilots. No one had ever heard of this band. I had never heard of the band. And she goes, tell me what you think. I need to I need to place an order for this pretty soon. Okay. Go home for the weekend, listen to it. It's an amazing album. That first album, Core, amazing. And, you know, the first thing I hear is Dead and Bloated. Then the next thing I hear is Sex Type Thing. I mean, this album's awesome. You know, it's got a little bit of sound like a almost like a little bit of a Pearl Jam on it, but a little heavier. You know, it's kind of like a, a mix between Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, and you throw in it's like all the grunge wrapped up into one band. To me, that was what Stone Temple Pilots' first album was like. And I was like, I, I went back to her on Monday. I said, you got to buy a shitload of this because it's going to be huge. Now, does that make me a great A&R guy? No, because obviously they got signed by someone else. <laughs> you know, but I wasn't working, you know, I wasn't a music business person. I just worked at a record store. But she said, you know, she comes up to me. She goes, I know you like rock. So here, tell me what you think. Is this going to be big? Shit, yeah, it's going to be big, you know. But I've also had other. You know, I listened to that YouTube album, Octung Baby. I didn't think it was going to be that big. I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. I thought that album sucked at first. I still think it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it sucked for different reasons than you think it sucks. <laughs> you know. But like, just like I, I thought the Red Hot Chili Peppers weren't going to go anywhere if they kept cursing. But they had never had a problem with their cursing. You know, they they made it despite their foul language. <laughs> you know, they had some good songs. So, you know, the music business, you know, chews you up and spits you out. And I believe Anvil's biggest problem was, was management. Um, one of those record companies that were not in it for the artist and uh essentially you know they got they got lost in the shuffle and when you take a four year break it's just it's not good i mean today nowadays is a different story you know it's it's completely different You're, i mean social media has changed everything you can right. be in the public eye at all times i exactly. mean everybody pretty much is in the public eye at all times if you're a celebrity of any type but back then it was tv radio um, touring, you know, things that kept you 
in the minds of the people and being gone for four years especially in the height of that that era uh, that killed them you know and and just and then the music just hasn't been that good then that too so to to kind of wrap this part up with with a nice little bow the biggest thing you know you talk about anvil you talk about you brought up keel um let's bring up black and blue um you know that that's another band that was supposed to be big it was another gene simmons produced band and they went nowhere after after a couple albums you know these you know lizzie borden i mean they they still they stayed with metal blade their entire career but they were they were basically disbanded and reformed and disbanded and reformed you know there's a reason why these albums i mean these bands don't make it because you, in god's honest truth they're not that good you know they're not you know like um the song okay um from keel the right to rock that was a great song anthem you know awesome but you got to follow it up with another good anthem not a cover of let's spend the night together from from the rolling stones you know not another cover from uh what was that that, that cover they, they did because the night because you know the night yeah i mean great version but it's just it, it's not but don't use that as your single well i mean you could but you got to follow it up with a good original and that was the problem. They had no good originals. Yes. Okay. Van Halen, you, you really got me as a cover. Great version, but they had great originals. You know, <laughs> so there's there's the difference. You know. Yeah. Um, it, it's 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 like that. There are plenty of bands who've, who've you know Quiet Riot. You know, they made it on Come On Feel the Noise. Great cover, almost a duplicate of the original. But Bang Your Head, Metal Health was a good song. The album itself was great. You had yeah. something good behind it. They they failed to capitalize on that, even though they had a platinum album with the second one, and they, they tried to do the same formula, and that was a problem. It became formulaic, which it shouldn't have been. It should have been more organic. You know, There's some bands that can adapt to the times and, and it not be it not feel forced. You know, when when Van Halen went from the the 70s into uh, the mid mid 80s, you know, when they started releasing songs like Jump and then even with with Sammy, they did. Why can't this be love? You know, introducing some synths. It didn't seem like they were doing it because they were desperate to survive. They, it, they just did it because they just liked the music and it, it felt natural and they were having fun with it. And you could tell. Yeah, you know that—that's the difference. Is a lot of these bands, they were just struggling because they just didn't have it. You know, they may—they may have had a, a few good songs in them, and it just didn't work out. Sometimes stuff doesn't work out. Exactly. Sometimes stuff doesn't work out, and that's you know, sometimes you just don't have it, and sometimes you do. I, I don't. To me, the bands that make it have something. And the ones that continue to succeed have something that appeals to the people that like that music. Um, the ones that don't succeed, yeah, you may have had one hit, but you weren't able to follow it up. And that's that's the big thing. All right, so um, that's the three main topics that I wanted to get off my chest. I, I don't think you have anything else per se, or was there something you wanted to beef about? No, I think I think I'm ready to get into the big four. 
All right, so we're into the big four. This week's big four, it goes all the way back to the first topic. Um, this is the big four bands not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for one reason or another. Um, they haven't gotten their participation trophy yet, or they haven't been inducted. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you go first? I think I went first last time. Okay. All right, so my number four is Motorhead. Um I kind of mentioned them earlier, but uh, Motorhead is a band that has been influential on so many different artists. Uh, so many have, have said that Lemmy was their inspiration for getting into music. Uh, they're a band that has won one Grammy. They've been no- nominated four times. Um, but th- the big thing is just the influence they had. You know, they were they were one of the bands that they weren't necessarily metal per se. Um, at least in the eyes of Lemmy, but everyone kind of viewed him as one of the the fathers of metal. So you know, it's 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 a shame that they're so overlooked. Uh, my number three is Pantera. Uh, Pantera had a relatively short career. Realistically, sure they had the stuff with Terry Glaze before, um, but it really wasn't until Cowboys from Hell when they really became an established band. Um, you know, four platinum records. One of them was a two times platinum. They had one gold record, which was their last album. Um, sold 20 million records worldwide, four Grammy nominations. Unfortunately, they never won one. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they influenced the sound of groove metal. They were, they were pop culture at that time. They were, they were huge. The attitude, um, you know, they were metal that worked at the time period. You know, when a lot of metal wasn't. So they're a band that, that uh, man, I love and I, I think people still love today. And, you know, there's no chance of them ever coming back. But uh, they live on through us, so they need to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, my number two is Megadeth. You know, six-time platinum re- or six platinum records, one two-time, uh, sold 38 million records worldwide, one Grammy win, 12 Grammy nominations. Um, you know, thrash musicians cite Dave as the godfather of thrash. Uh, you know, his early work with Metallica is super important in establishing the sound of thrash. He's continued on all these years, um, being, you know, a a a metal guy, and he just he's important in the the genre of of thrash metal as well as metal in general so many people use him as a as a a inspiration a reference of getting into music amazing songwriter kind of brought on a more technical aspect than some of his contemporaries and definitely deserves to be in the hall of fame my number one is iron maiden uh five-time platinum record uh, and I'm using U.S. counts. Obviously, there's there's the others in the other countries, but we're from the U.S. and and that's kind of what we're basing it on. And the the Hall of Fame is, I guess, based out of here, sadly, and not a good representative of our, of our country. Um, <laughs> uh, technically, they have six platinum albums if you can if you include Live After Death, uh, one Grammy win with um, I believe it was Blood Brothers. Um, I love that song. Four Grammy nominations. Um, they've influenced so many bands. There would not be a lot of metal music without the inspiration of Iron Maiden. Um, you know, they're one of my favorite bands, period. And it may be a little bit of bias on my part, but I don't think so. I think, I, 
you know, they've been a, a subsisting band and they've only gotten better with age. Sure, they've gone through three, you know, I guess technically four different eras, um, but three singers. And they continue to put out amazing music and they're still such an influence on the genre. They got to be in the Hall of Fame, period. I agree. Um, so I was going to laugh because when you said um, many, many people use Dave reference as a, a Dave, excuse me, Dave, Dave Mustaine as a, as a influence. And you said reference uh, shortly after. I, I just imagine someone going, yeah, I, I know Dave Mustaine. You, you think you can get <laughs> He's my me, reference. He's my reference. Job <laughs> <your job interview. laughs> All right. Funny. So you, you're showing here your references are your mom, your dad, Dave Mustaine. They call Dave and he's like, he sucks. <laughs> I don't know anything about that guy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Are you sure his last name's Mustaine? No, I don't know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's my son. <laughs> All right. Um, all right. So for me, I we have one crossover out of this one. Um, I had three other artists that um, I chose, um, and I chose for different reasons. Um, so my number four is The Runaways, which The Runaways included Cherry Curry, Lita Ford, and Joan Jett, among two other uh, musicians that were part of the band, the, the original five uh, fem- uh, five lady members. Um, after their third album, it was only four. Cherry Curry left, and um, Joan Jett became the main lead singer for the band. Um, I mean... Their influence is felt every day by every woman who plays rock and roll. Um, Lita Ford still plays to this day. Um, Cherry Curry still plays to this day. Joan Jett still plays. She's the opening act for the stadium tour with Molly Crew, Def Leppard. Um, Lita Ford is doing her own thing. Um, so, you know, they they were a huge influence for a lot of women in the in the seventies and eighties. They had a lot of things go wrong with their career and they you know when they split up they had their individual successes um as you everyone knows Joan and and Lita but um I I think they were very influential in regards to female rockers and that that's uh, definitely something worthy of being in the rock and roll hall of fame for a uh, number 3 for me is Corn um Many people may not may, may say that they're not metal, but obviously they are the people who have been given the distinguished uh, label of being the starters or the grandfathers or the people who started new metal. Um, they have had a very long and successful career. I give them that much. Um, but I believe they should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for that reason. Um, you're starting a whole sub, excuse me. You starting a whole subgenre of of metal kind of puts you there in, in one of the top influential bands in the in the scene today. Um, for me, number two. Now this one, this guy's already in the Hall of Fame, but he's not in the Hall of Fame as a solo artist and uh, many people would say that his solo career was bigger than his band career has definitely lasted longer um and i'm talking about ozzy osbourne um ozzy has uh 
I mean, obviously you're a fan. I'm a fan. Ozzy's solo career um, has been basically based on the guy playing six-string guitar for him. Uh, Randy was huge. Jakey Lee was huge. Zach Wilde was huge. Those are the three biggest guitar players that, that Ozzy's played with. And each of them have had a, a, a huge influence on Ozzy himself and the music that he's come that they've put out, as well as an influence on the guitar players that come that that play that music. Um, so, for that reason, I believe Ozzy as a solo artist should be in the Hall of Fame. And number one is the same as your number one, Iron Maiden, without a doubt, needs to be in in the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, they continue to this day to sell out stadiums world wide every place they go to they sell out stadiums worldwide except the united states which might that might be the issue um they do still do well in the united states but they don't do as well as they do in south america in the uk in europe in australia every other country in the world they are without a doubt a, a stadium band, but in the United States is a little different. But they definitely deserve it. Uh, be, besides all the accolades that you mentioned, Chris, um, with with the six six and seven platinum albums, it you know just the, the awards have been uh, just endless for them over the years, and they continue to put out great music. They continue to influence new bands to this day, and that's all you can sit there and say. They have one of the best shows in in concerts. You know, hands down, they always are entertaining the fans, and that's their main goal is to is is their fans to entertain and to make their fans happy, and I think they achieve that every single time. They do. Their concerts are amazing, and like I said, they're they keep putting out better and better music, and it's just sad. It's, I mean, you, you, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is just absolutely clueless, and and. Until they have a clue or buy a clue or, you know, phone a friend or something, uh, it's going to continue to sound to, to be that way. Well, that's our big four bands not in the Hall of Fame. And that brings a close to this episode of Debating Metal. Um, so, like always, don't forget to tell your friends about us and subscribe and follow. And don't forget you can interact with us by commenting on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can send us a DM as well. If you listen to us on YouTube, be sure to leave us a comment, or if you want, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. And remember to tune in to the next episode where we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe, and always turn it up to 11. See ya.